0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, here we go again. We got another hunter profile podcast today. And uh, it's a pretty good one. We got Melissa Bachman on the show. And if you don't know who she is, she has her own television show. It's called Deadly Passion. And uh, she pretty much kills just about every animal in the books. um, And uh, she does a good job at it too. Today we're going to be talking with her about her youth. We're going to be talking about her profession. We're going to be talking about... um, some of the haters that she had to deal with when she had that whole uh, lion ordeal. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, women in hunting and uh, some, you know, some topics uh, that surround all the things that I've just mentioned. Now, if you would like to be on a Hunter Profile podcast, all you got to do is send me an email. uh, Tell me a little bit about your story. That's Nine Finger chronicles at gmail.com. Go ahead, send me a brief update about what you uh, harvested. It can be an elk. It can be in Turkey. It can be a deer, a mule deer, antelope, any animal that you have an exciting story or a cool, unique story behind. I'd love to get you guys on the show, share it with the rest of the listeners and, uh, you know, basically say average Joes can get it done too. So other than that, what else do we have to talk about today? Oh, one thing that I want to talk about really quick is so far I have done two what I call the live BS sessions. So on the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page, it allows you to do a live feed. So it today is Tuesday night, when I'm doing the recording on this. And I'll launch this podcast Wednesday morning. But I want everybody to head over to the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page. And so far I have done two, three, or four, maybe four live feeds. And then what? when I'm done with the feed, it saves as a video. So go to the videos. Check them out. Make sure you guys are constantly checking into my Facebook page, my Instagram page, uh, my Twitter profile. And I am letting everybody know in advance when i'm going to do these live feeds and you know the goal is to try to get as many people to chip in as possible and for example the one i did tonight i did it with ben harshine of huntera and we talked about tree stand locations access routes uh terrain features and uh he's he's a map expert so he's he pointed out You know, hey, this is what a bench looks like. This is what a draw looks like. This is what um, typically where does like to bed as opposed to where bucks like to bed, so forth and so on. And uh, the cool thing about it is it's 100% interactive. So as we're doing this live feed, you guys can chip in with comments, questions, and uh, we just make this basically a BS session. And uh, I like that because Basically, it's just a bunch of hunters talking about what they would do in specific scenarios. And it's, it's, uh, so far, it's a good turnout, but the more the merrier. But before we get into this week's podcast, I recently sat down with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras to talk about their direct-to-consumer business model and why it's so attractive and gaining traction in the hunting industry.
2: So, you know, direct-to-consumer is, is kind of this buzzword that's going around these days in the retail space because it's causing a lot of disruption. And a lot of your big retailers aren't going to tell you this yet, but they're worried about it, very worried about it. Because what we see is over the next five to ten years, companies like Kuyu, Maven Optics, Exodus Outdoor Gear, um, yours truly, I see companies like that becoming the normal rather than the exception. And the reason why is people are not necessarily excited about the fact that they're paying about half of every product that they buy in profit to Cabela's, Bass Pro's, Dick Sporting Goods, all the major retailers of the world. So what we do is instead of that, we build a product. We build it better because we don't have to compete with 15 other products that are on the same shelf. We build it better. Nobody's telling us how to build our products. We put them out at a better price, and you're getting a more quality product for a cheaper price, which everybody, I think, can be happy with. What we typically like to say is if our camera, the Exodus Lift, was in retail stores, it would be about $479 retail. We're able to sell it at $230 retail and offer our 5-year warranty and 50% off theft, you know, damage replacement policy because we're direct to consumer and that's a big deal to us.
0: If you guys want to find out more information about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to visit their website at exodusoutdoorgear.com and if you do decide to purchase one of their trail cameras enter the code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers uh, no spaces and uh, you'd be eligible for twenty dollars off your purchase now let's get into this week's podcast with melissa bachman all right on the show with me now is melissa bachman how you doing today melissa
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic. So it's it's springtime, and that typically means turkeys. Have you been out turkey hunting this year?
1: Yes, I have. It's actually been just an amazing year. I was in Illinois and got both my birds there right away, and I was actually able to film several other people in camp too, so it's really nice when they all come together. And then I headed over to Nebraska and got all three of my turkeys there, so Great turkey season so far and just happened to be home a couple of days in between going to Alaska. So everything is good.
0: You're batting a hundred.
1: Yeah, so far. Hey, you know what? I will take that anytime. It <laughs> any time. It's been plenty of years that uh, turkey hunting is not exactly ideal. Um, this year it just worked out perfectly, especially with the weather. We had beautiful, sunny weather. I mean, I've sat out in Illinois for an entire week where it never quit raining. So I was very thankful for that, and I will take turkey hunts that come together any time.
0: <laughs> what are you chasing in Alaska.
1: I'm actually bringing my dad up to Alaska. We're doing probably one of my favorite hunts of all time is uh, Prince of Wales hunting, um, going for black bear. Um, And I actually have a friend up there who's a guide now, and we are going to be going up and calling the black bear in on Prince of Wales Island and trying to bring them in. I've called in three myself and taken them with a bow. So this time my dad and I are going to go up there and hopefully we can do it again.
0: So are you using some kind of a distress call to call them in?
1: Yeah, what we do up there is it is in the spring, right when these black bears are coming out of hibernation. And usually what we found is when they first come out, they're looking for just those really nice, fresh, green shoots of grass to get their digestive system going. Once they've been down for a couple of days, the next thing they're looking for is a hot meal. So what we're using is a Sitka fawn in distress type call. Um, It just sounds like your average predator call. But those six Kadir are dropping their fawns at that time of the year. And black bear, they don't have very good eyesight. So usually what I'll do is get the wind in my favor, start using the call, and actually move around a little bit. So it seems like I'm actually the bait, and it has worked unbelievable. I've had three bears come charging in inside of 20 yards, and all those have been with a bow. This time we're going with a rifle, so hopefully we'll bring them in just as close again.
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing. I, anytime anybody says, "Hey, I'm going to Alaska to hunt. What you know, whatever. I get a little mm-hmm. bit. I get a little bit jealous. So I am jealous of you for <laughs> for going to Alaska. Now, yes, as, be nice As far as this past fall was concerned, what did you uh, did you have a pretty exciting, pretty uh, decent uh, 2015 fall?
1: Yeah, I had a really good fall. Um, I travel a lot. Last year, it seemed like I was on the road an awful lot." And I actually went back and counted it up, and I was gone 317 days. So, <laughs> by percentage, of course, you're going to have some good things happen in that amount of time hunting. But like anybody, there were a lot of hunters that were also unsuccessful, and some that just took a really long time and a lot of dedication. But it was an amazing year. I had a, a wonderful hunt out on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Got a nice muley there after decoying in probably 20, 30 whitetail bucks with a decoy. I ended it by decoying in a mule deer, so that was kind of cool. Also, shot a really nice big velvet mule deer in Colorado, a beautiful elk. Um, it was overall a very good season, but like anybody who's out there hunting, there's definitely ones that don't go as well. Right. Just as much.
0: Right. So, did you have, can you share with us maybe a story of your, uh, you know, a real quick story of your favorite, like your most memorable hunt from 2015?
1: Uh, Probably my most memorable hunt, I actually got hooked up the year before in 2014 with a young girl named Kelly who had a dream to come hunting with me. She was diagnosed with Friedrich's ataxia and a, a group called Wishes and More said that they would help grant her any wish and her wish was to come hunting with me which was crazy and so I made that happen in 2014 I sat with her for three hunts and filmed her and we weren't able to get her a big buck in Illinois like she wanted we got her a nice doe, a nice turkey so I said you know what You come back for next year. So she came back again, and she was able to shoot a beautiful buck that came in right into the decoy, shot it with a crossbow. And, you know, that was one of the neatest things just to be a part of because that was her dream, and and I was able to help make that happen. So it was a lot of fun.
0: I'm sure that'll last, last, not only if, you know with her, but for you for a, a long time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And she's become a close friend, someone I talk to all the time. So it's just, it's fun sometimes when you can give back I and mean, then I love being out there hunting too, but seeing it all come together for her, that was really something special.
0: All right. So now we're going to go all the way back. All right. We're going to go way back and I want to talk to you about your youth. And mm-hmm. how you got into hunting and maybe the people that influenced you or kind of guided you in that right direction.
1: Well, I grew up in central Minnesota and my mom and dad both just loved to hunt. They were always bringing both my brother and I out in the field And that really made the difference. That was way before we could hunt ourselves. I mean, we were four or five years old, and they had us out in the duck blind. They'd make our own little place that was like our own little hut. And when a duck would fall, we'd run out and get it and bring it back in with us. We had a whole bunch of snacks, and it was just a really great experience. So both my mom and dad really got both my brother and I into hunting. In fact, they'd go out bow hunting, and each of them would take one of us which was pretty amazing because I'm sure we weren't the quietest. <laughs> I'm sure it would have been a lot easier just to leave us home, but they didn't do that. They they took the time. They brought us along. They always made sure it was fun. And I think that was one of the biggest things that made both of us just absolutely love hunting because it was always fun. You know, if it was cold or we got bored, they took us home. I'm sure there were times they'd rather stay out hunting, but they made sure to keep it a positive experience for us, and, and it really did make a difference. So as we were getting older, I just uh, hunting was something I just loved. And, and when I was actually in high school, they signed a work permit well, I didn't have to go to school till ten o'clock, so I could bow hunt in the mornings before school. <laughs> so, uh, wait a second—that kind of shows. <laughs> hey, I they was providing food. Yeah, I grew up in a small town. It was awesome. It was a work permit, and they just signed in saying that I was providing food for my family. And that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> you know, nice. And so I think that just kind of shows just the deep love for it that I've always had. I mean, before my 12th birthday in Minnesota, you have to be 12 before you can hunt. And I couldn't even sleep the night before. I was so excited to go out deer hunting that when my parents woke up, I had hardly slept and I had all these little maps drawn out of everywhere I thought we should go hunting on the property and in which order. And I'm sure at that time they're thinking, this little 12-year-old thinks she knows better where we should hunt. But I think overall, you know, they they let me go with it and they, they let me shoot deer. And there was never any pressure to shoot a big buck or anything like that. We just were out there filling the freezer and it really did make a difference on just that true passion that I still have to this day.
0: So a lot of the focus necessarily wasn't on any type of big antlers or maturity level. Um, was it oh, kind no, of? Oh no,
1: not at all. <laughs> it was kind of a "if it's
0: brown, it's down" kind of mentality.
1: Yeah, you know, and we grew up in central Minnesota, Minnesota and I'm sure if we would have used a more strict management plan, we could have had you know bigger deer. And we we have great deer now that we're gone and grown up, but. I think one of the most important things is that wasn't the big issue. It was just going out there, having fun, filling the freezer. And that's something to keep in mind for kids, because if they would have told me, no, you can't shoot that one, it's not old enough, or that one's not big enough, I think I could have been easily discouraged. And, you know, the whole idea was bringing it home, hanging it, helping with the cleaning, cleaning, you know, doing all of it from start to finish, and then helping learn how to cook it, too. Um so I think all that was extremely important.
0: Now, I have I have a son and I have a daughter, all right? Mm-hmm. Did your parents treat you as a as a, a girl or your brother as a boy differently on the way out to the woods or was it equal equally the same?
1: No, I would say it was the same all the time. Um they just made sure we were both comfortable. Um, that were warm enough, had plenty of snacks. Um, And then when it came down to it, you know, obviously our physical strength, my dad wasn't going to make me drag out a deer. I was pretty (laughs) little at 12. Um, But you know, it was the same rules. Uh, If I wanted to bow hunt, I had to be able to draw 40 pounds. Um, So I was doing push-ups for like a year and a half, trying to get strong enough to draw 40 pounds. And I was able to go out and I got a nice deer with my bow. And you know, when I say nice ear, it was a smaller doe. No big deal. That, that To me, it was just making the shot, knowing my limitations, and, you know, and I don't think they treated either of us any differently um, based on the fact that we were a girl or a boy at the time, not one bit.
0: Gotcha. So, you kind of led us right to your, you know, the very first, you know, your first hunting season when you were able to go out by yourself. Did you... Were you successful in that first year? And if so, why don't you talk to uh, talk to us a little bit about that hunt?
1: Yeah, um, my very first year out, obviously, I was super excited. What we did is a lot of deer drives, which, you know, you're dealing with more running deer and stuff. And I was able to take a nice, it was a smaller doe. I was thrilled. I filled my tag. And in Minnesota, you could party hunt. And my dad actually let me fill his tag. So I just thought it was the best thing in the world, right? Well, then the second year came. And I didn't get a deer. And I was so disappointed. I remember sitting there, almost started crying. And I think it was a great lesson. And my dad just looked at me and said, yeah, you hunted hard, but you're going to have to learn. You're not always going to be successful. Just the way it is. Tough break. And, you know, I think that's something that's really good because it doesn't, just because you put in all that time, doesn't mean it's going to work out. And I learned that lesson early on. And and uh, I'm reminded of it every single year um, when things don't work out. So. I, I think that was something that was really important and that I did learn. Yes, I was successful that first year, but not every year after.
0: Now, aside from, you know, hey, you can't always win type of lessons that your parents may have taught you, did did your family ever get into detail or, or talk to you at all about maybe conservation or, because uh, I know you're involved in some conservation uh, right now, but mm-hmm. did they ever... Did they ever kind of, you know, hey, you can't take more than, you know, than what you can use type of lessons? And and if so, some of those lessons did they carry with you to to today?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, when we were young, we actually, my parents had just bought a piece of property. And one of the very first things that we learned is going out there, number one, we all had to help pitch in kicking rocks, and we were very young and trying to get it prepared. But then we planted all these trees because they wanted to someday build a house there and have all these trees. It was There were really no trees at all. And we put all those trees in, and the next year, pocket gophers came in and started eating all the roots and killing our trees. So right then and there, we learned about the importance of keeping everything in balance and my parents taught us how to trap pocket gophers. We ended up being able to do that all the time as we grew up. And we actually got 50 cents a gopher. So that was our big money maker as kids. <laughs> We'd go out and we would trap those pocket gophers. But I think it shows, you know, just putting those trees in and, and the conservation of all that and keeping a healthy balance. Plus, you know, we would take enough deer that we would get, a, you know, what our tags allowed, fill our freezer, and that was it. Same with fishing. You take what you need and you don't take anything more than that. And the importance of the balance and and what the money for tags goes for. And all that I think is, you know, just as important as, you know, being an ethical hunter out in the field. Um, It really does stick with people. And when you're doing it hands on, I think kids remember it a lot more as well.
0: Right. So for me, I was, I was a bit of a late bloomer. Um, I didn't grow up per se in a hunting family. I myself mm-hmm. kind of got into uh hunting. I I had some help along the ways. Like I, I had some uncles who would take me pheasant hunting and um fishing has always been a big part of my family. But as far as bow hunting is concerned, I had I had some people maybe help me, but I've kind of taught myself throughout the, you know, throughout the years. And then I kind of got into high school, did some sports, got into college, you know, and other things maybe were important for me at that time. I shouldn't say important. I should say took priority and, um, (laughs) and, and and never, and never, you know, stayed focused on hunting. Did you ever have a, like a lull in hunting as you were growing up? Maybe when you were in high school or, you know, I don't know if you went to college or not or anything like that. Mm
1: Um, During high school, I hunted all the time. Any chance I got, I was also very active in sports. So, you know, that's where it came in nice in the mornings before school that I was able to go. Um, But I'd say in my whole life, the one time I hunted, probably the least was through college. I was in um, college track. I ran track, and I was also on the news team and did a lot of stuff there. So I still went deer hunting every year with my family, but that was really kind of it for the amount of hunting that I could do, maybe one or two waterfowl hunts a year. Um, So, you know, I think everybody goes through times when you can't be hunting every minute. There's other things that come up and uh, especially compared to how much I hunt now, that was definitely a lot less then.
0: Right. So you started off, you know, doing party hunting with your family. When did you get into bow hunting?
1: Um, I was a bow hunter ever since I was a little kid. I got my first bow, I think, at four or five years old. Um, so I shot bow all all the time. I was always out in the yard shooting. Um, but I finally got my first bow that I could actually hunt with at twelve. Like I said, did all those push ups, did all that to get strong enough. And I got my first deer. Um, I'm not sure if it was right away at twelve or a couple of years after. Um, but I really loved bow hunting, and that was something my mom was really into as well. So, I think it helped for me. it helped having that role model there, someone to look up to. My mom was on the front page of our paper um Bachman <laughs> Big big Buck, and she had this buck with her bow um when she was thirty and I think things like that really do make an influence and an impression on people, and it did cause me to really want to be a bow hunter and and keep practicing
0: so you know you kind it sounds to me like. it's in your blood period. I mean, you, you've been taught the way of the hunter since birth. Do you have a favorite? I mean, if you were to pick, if you were to pick just to hunt with a gun or just to hunt with a bow for the rest of your life, what would you pick?
1: Boy, I don't know. That's a pretty tough question because for me, it all comes down to just being able to be out there and hunt. To me, I guess it's less about The weapon I'm using or less about the animal, it's become more about just the overall experience and honestly, the people I get to be with. Um, Now, I'm lucky enough that I get to hunt a lot of different locations, but I don't always base it on, you know, where has the biggest trophy animals. I base it on where I have the most fun. And these people become almost like family, you know. I look forward to going back and seeing them more than anything else. So I think to me that's probably the most important thing is is just being around those other people. If it was with a bow or a gun, it wouldn't really matter.
0: Right. So you're you're focused more on the on the I guess the the social aspect of hunting. You that you really enjoy that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So you know how long has how long have you been in? the quote-unquote hunting industry and 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 had kind of a tv show
1: well i actually when i got out of college i decided i wanted to be in the television industry and i originally was gonna try to be on the nfl sideline then i realized after getting out of school that's just not going to be where i want i love to hunt so i wanted to find a way to get into that industry So upon graduating from college, I sent out 74 resume reels trying to find a job. Now, all I wanted to do was just be a producer, a cameraman, editor, whatever. That's what my degree was in. And I got 74 no's. (laughs) Every single person wrote back and said, not interested, no experience. And I'm thinking, how can this possibly be? I have a four-year degree, double major, all these things, and nobody wants to hire me. So I actually went back through and picked out the number one place I wanted to work if I had my choice. I called them back up. It was the North American Hunting Club and said, hey, um, I am really interested in working there. You turned me down. What about me working for free as an intern? And they said, absolutely. (laughs) When can you start? And I said, "Uh, tomorrow. So I started driving every single day 150 miles a day to go there to work for free. Um, And my goal was just try to work my way up. I did that for four Four months, and then they hired me as a full-time producer, um, and it was that was a huge relief because I was driving every day 150 miles. Plus, I was working at a bar at night, bartending, just to pay the bills and the gas to get back and forth. So I was uh, very excited to learn that they wanted to hire me full time. And then I actually worked as a producer and an editor for four years, um, filming other other people's shows, putting it together, doing everything. I basically went to college for. And then finally, I was able to um, really get my own show going. And that wasn't even because someone gave me the shot. Um, When I was working as a producer, if I would work 30 days straight, they gave me five days off. So on those five days, I would go out, hunt, film my own show, edit it, and just wait for someone else not to have their show finished. And when they didn't get a show, I'd say, well, I have one that you guys can have for free if you're interested in running it. Um, and that's really how I got my start. So I've been doing it, I believe for 10 solid years now. Um, I'm in the sixth season of my show, but those first four years were just working and getting my foot in the door.
0: Right, right. So that's kind of funny that you, you, you mentioned that you worked for free for a while because I feel that in how, I guess your story is a perfect example of how actually hard it is to get into the hunting industry. You know, you have a lot of people, you know, I go to the ATA show every year and I see a lot of people walking around handing out, Hey, I want to, I want to be a professional hunter. I want to, I have my own TV show. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's, and it's really not that simple. Um, can, can you talk, uh, t- um, at all about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there who, of course, want to turn their passion into a career. I mean, what better thing? That's what I wanted to do. The difference is you literally have to be willing to give up everything for it. Um, Those first four years, I would work nonstop. um, And then once I finally got my show, you think, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing. Not a chance. I was doing all of the editing, production, sales, the whole thing, just me for four years solid. So I was putting in 90 to a hundred hour weeks because I didn't get to do anything with my family do. That's all I would do. And that's the only thing that you can do different than other people. It's the amount of dedication and what you're willing to put into it. And also the knowledge you have. I mean, I went to school for the behind the scenes thing. What I didn't want to do is just show up and say, Hey, I'm the talent. I want to have a spot here. Uh, Everybody has that. You have to find something that's a little bit different of a niche to get your way in. Plus, you need to have something to fall back on. If it doesn't work out, I had a degree in production. I could go out and I can get a job. What you don't want to do is put all your eggs in one basket of, I want to be the one on-camera person. Yeah, it might not work out. You better have a backup plan.
0: So with with that said, if you weren't doing you know, the deadly passion TV show on the sportsman's channel, what would you be, what do you think you would be doing right now?
1: Well, I had two things I either wanted to do. I was going to be doing this or, um, like I said, on the NFL sidelines, or I was going to go to med school to be an anesthesiologist. So (laughs) I'd probably be making a ton of more money being an anesthesiologist, (laughs) um, But you know what? I really love it. There's not a day that goes by that I'd rather be doing anything else than out in the field hunting. Even when I'm back, I love the editing, the production side of it. Um, I run an entire production studio and do a lot of high-end commercials and other stuff. So that's something that I truly love and enjoy. And the best part about my job is it's always changing. It's not the exact same. Any week after week, it's always different. And I like that a lot.
0: Right. So... Do you ever find you mentioned earlier that one year you were on the road for three hundred and seventeen days. That mm-hmm. is uh, where do you I guess where do you call home now?
1: <laughs> um, I have a I have a house in Minnesota. That's where I grew up. I live in the um western suburbs right now. Um that's where I've been for probably the past nine or ten years. Gotcha. Um as soon as I got that job at North American, the first thing I did is get a place here so I didn't have to uh um, be running all over back and forth, but um, I really enjoy that. And you know, it is a lot of time on the road. That was last year. I mean, three hundred and seventeen days traveling. It's a lot for anybody. Um, but when you love what you do, it helps. But one of the difficult parts is not being at your own home. I mean, people like to go home and sleep in their own beds. I definitely don't get to do that very often.
0: <laughs> right? I mean, you know, a, a lot of people. A lot of people associate hunting with a male, like a male driven sport. So I I don't know why I just pictured this, but I, I pictured you in a cabin with a whole bunch of stinky men. I don't know. Is that ever happens accurate? all the time.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'd say that's accurate um, a good percentage of my days. And you know what? I mean, I'm someone that is, I am not a high maintenance person at all. Yeah. I'm someone who I'm used to going, being in whatever kind of accommodations. The only thing I want are nice people around me. If I go to a place, the hunting is amazing, and the people are not nice, you will not see me back there. Um, it can be the best hunting ever, and I don't care if we're sleeping in a tent if we have no water. Whatever it is, that's fine as long as people are nice. Um, that's my biggest thing.
0: So, you you've been hunting for a, a long time, and I, I'd like to talk about a couple a couple hunts that I've thought of here, and I want to talk about maybe the very first big game animal that you killed that wasn't a whitetail and if you could share that story with us i'd love to hear it
1: well let me think here one of my first big game animals that was not a whitetail boy everything i can think of to start off was <laughs> whitetails um
0: how about like uh your first antelope or your first mule deer
1: you know what i think was uh one of my very first times i went out for a mule deer and I it, I was going to Montana, I had killed whitetails before, and I was going to go after a mule deer, and my goal was to do it spot and stock with a bow. And the outfit I was with, he looked at me and he said, well, good luck with that, I'm going to watch you from the truck, and I will cheer <laughs> you on on every single stock. And he said, just to let you know, it usually takes 10 to 15 before you're successful. Okay, I like that challenge. So... We saw a nice big group of mule deer that were all bedded along a fence because it was really windy, and they were using it almost as a break. So we got there, and we were probably four or 500 yards from the mule deer, and he said, I'm going to sit in the truck and film you. We'll film you right out the window, and I'm going to watch you crawl all the way out there. He said, see that little white bush? That's 18 yards. You get there, and you should be able to get them. Okay. <laughs> so I got out. I belly crawled all the way there through I had cactus in my arm all over. I get there, and I had never done a spot and stock hunt with my bow before, and I'm laying on my belly. All these big muleys are in front of me, and I'm thinking, how on earth do you get to full draw? Well, if I'd have thought it through a little more and not panicked, I'd have just rolled over on my back, drawn, you know, figured something out. Well, instead, I just kind of jumped up to my knees and got to full draw quick. They were already running out of there. And they were laughing back at the truck and he goes, I never thought you'd actually get there. And the cool part is we did, I don't know how many more stocks, eight, 10 more stocks. And I ended up killing the deer that I was after on that fence line. Um, I made a stock after quite a bit of practice and I ended up getting him. So it was a really cool experience and it was just fun. You know, it's one of those things where when you've never done it before, you forget to ask all the right questions. And uh, I got to that grass where he wanted me to get to, but I just didn't have a plan on how to get to full draw at that point.
0: So walking up on a different species, what was kind of, you know, you you put all that energy and effort into it. And I guess what was going through your head after you, you know, you successfully made that, that kill after all those, you know, all those failed attempts?
1: Well, when I got up to, I would just, first of all, it was a huge mule deer that was only, I think it was a three by two, but it had the biggest bases you've ever seen. Super framing. I, I mean, to this day, I would shoot that deer every single time if I had a bunch in a group. It was a really old buck. And just that feeling of accomplishment, having someone tell you, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to get this done. And getting it done, making it happen, learning, you know, learning from your own mistakes and building on it. It was just so awesome. And walking up on a mule deer, which is something different than whitetails, it was cool because, you know, they really do look different. And, and you get up there and, and they have different attributes that are different than tails, where, you know, they're going to see you coming a mile away. Or tails, they're usually using their sense of smell. So a lot of it was just learning about the different animals that I've gone after and, and trying to figure out what their senses are and, and what the best thing you can do is to hunt
0: them. Right. All right. So next question I want to talk to you about is this past year I went on my very first elk hunt out in Idaho and Mm I, I practiced my shooting all, you know, all year or all summer to, and I was the best shot I've ever been. I worked out a ton and I was in, I was in really good shape, had strong legs, strong back, and, and I was ready to go. I get out to Idaho and you know, I'm an Iowa boy, so I'm not used to (laughs) elevation. So here I am Mm -hmm. gasping (laughs) for, for you being from Minnesota, similar type of situation. Can you, can you talk about maybe your first high elevation hunt and maybe explain what that was for and, and maybe the kind of conditioning that, you know, you you say you ran track, so you're in Mm -hmm. somewhat decent shape, I, I take it. But maybe the first instance of hunting out West in in some higher elevation?
1: Well, one of the very first times I was actually in high, high elevation, I was actually the cameraman. I was out filming. We started at 10,000 feet, which that's pretty high when you come straight from Minnesota. And it was absolutely brutal. One of the biggest difficulties was I get elevation sickness. Well, I didn't know that at the time. And it felt like I had the flu for three days. Not only can you not breathe, I was sick as can be, and it was a really difficult thing. But one of the things I learned there is to drink a lot of water. You know, the best thing you can do is acclimate yourself. Start out, you know, if you can be in Denver for a day or two and just work your way up, that is a lot better. But it was even harder as a cameraman because as a hunter, you're carrying maybe a backpack in in your gun or boat. For me, I had almost a 70-pound backpack full of camera gear and a big old huge camera That was almost 10 years ago. They weren't that small then. Um, So I think that was one of those things where you really learn to be mentally tough as well. Um, Sometimes you're sick. Sometimes things happen. And that elevation, is just no way to prepare for it other than to keep yourself in the best tip-top condition you can where you live and go there. And, you know, if you possibly do get elevation sickness, they do make great medicine now that does help a lot that I make sure to always have with me now.
0: Yeah, I tell you, that First
1: time I, you definitely don't know about it.
0: Yeah, I took uh I took pills cuz I get I, it's kind of weird, but I get car sick real easy if I'm not driving. Mm-hmm. So I took uh for like 7 days before I went on that hunt, I took I forget what kind of pills they are that were supposed to help prevent altitude sickness and uh getting mm-hmm. dizzy spells and it, it worked. So I'll I'll definitely do that next time. But you know <laughs> To elaborate a little bit or to go back to this 317 days away from home, you're on the road. Um, I take it there's times you are in absolutely horrible weather, whether it's extremely hot, extremely windy, extremely cold. How, How much does mental strength play into your year as you know, you know cuz as a hunter we deal with failure a majority or more than we deal with success and yeah. <laughs> you know we got to be mentally strong why don't you know explain to us how mental i guess mental conditioning plays a role in 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 your in your life
1: I think mental toughness has been probably one of my biggest things that's helped me. Um, I'd say I'm a really mentally strong person, but it can be difficult when you're out there, things are not going right. You start blaming yourself. You start thinking you're doing something wrong. You get down, and that's the worst thing you can do because now you're eliminating your chances of success. So you really have to stay positive, you know, and, and even for me, I mean, it's my business. If I'm out there, I mean, I've been, last year, for example, I had 13 hunts that were a zero On Now, when I say a zero, I mean, there was a wonderful experience, but as far as filming a show, there's no show. There's not enough footage. That can be very easy to get down when you have something like that, but then you can go and all of a sudden you kill three big whitetails in five days everything shifts so fast so you really have to be mentally tough enough to deal with you know the times when it's not going right you can't get mad you just have to just stop think it through see what you can change to try to do better and go from there and even with weather i mean you're going to have times when it doesn't quit raining or it's so windy the animals are spooky you got to think about it. there's nothing you can do Nothing you can do to change it whatsoever, so just try to learn from it. I mean, I see whitetail hunters get so upset because all the bucks are nocturnal. Well, you know what? There are some nocturnal, and I've I've been in that same situation, but sometimes you can put out a mock scrape and all of a sudden you can pull a buck it can all change so quickly. So if you let that that disappointment overtake your hunt, number one, you're not having fun anymore, so you might as well just go home, but number two... If you do that, you are setting yourself up for more failure. So you really got to try to stay positive the whole time and, and just try to keep learning from your mistakes. You're going to make mistakes just like we all do, you know?
0: Right, right. Now, again, you're out there a lot. 312, you know, I keep, I, I don't know why I keep saying it because it's just, it's a crazy <laughs> number to me. That's like, that's how many days I go to work in a year. That's probably more that more days than I go to work in a year. But, but like you, you rely, you're, you're gone a lot. You rely, especially if let's say you're out in the back country, you're either camping out of a tent or you're in a cabin somewhere. You're, you know, deer, the, the, you know, animals aren't, you know, five miles from a, a Walmart where you can go and, uh-huh. and grab new stuff. <laughs> How much do you rely, and I know you have sponsors and stuff like that, but how much do you rely on your gear throughout the year to get you through?
1: I mean, the bottom line is it absolutely has to work. Um, The last thing you want is for everything to finally come together and some piece of your gear to fail you. You put in too much time, too much money, too much everything to have that happen. So one of the biggest things is making sure you understand and know your gear know the limitations of it you know if you have a backpack that can't handle an uh, 80 90 pound load of meat don't be putting it in and busting it through and then there you've got an animal laying that you got to pack out and you have no backpack so a lot of it is knowing your own gear and having confidence in your own setup huh especially with bow hunting um i see some people who come out and they're a little unsure they'll have a couple different kind of broadheads in their quiver well it just depends you need to know what works best and stick with it. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. And just, you know, yeah, I'm doing it all the time. But for anyone who's out there, your time is precious. You want to make sure the gear you have is not going to let you down in any situation, whether that's your clothes, your bow, your broadheads, whatever it is.
0: What uh, what do you feel is, I know this is kind of, because uh, every piece of gear has, I mean, has its own, use, right? You know, mm-hmm. your boots keep your feet warm and dry and your shirt keeps your, your you know, you warm and your backpack carries your supplies mm-hmm. and whatnot. Do you have uh, a piece of gear that you would say takes the cake as far as being the most important piece of gear?
1: Um, I guess I, if I had to narrow it down, it'd be probably the actual clothes that I'm wearing, whether it's a, you know, a cold, wet hunt or what, whatever it is. If you're not comfortable, you're not going to be at your best hunting ability. If you're sitting on stand and you're cold, you're going to be moving around. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're not going to sit as long. You're not going to sit as still. So I think those things that keep you comfortable are probably the absolute most important, in my opinion.
0: Right, right. Okay. So now we're going to take a little bit of a shift here and... I want to talk to you a little bit about if you want to call it controversy. There you posted a picture on social media and there was a huge explosion of, you know, the quote-unquote haters came out behind their keyboards. And you did did you receive some death threats and some I I guess talk to t- explain to us a little bit about what all that was and then talk about com- some of the feedback that you got.
1: Well, it was several years ago now, but um, I had been in South Africa. I shot a nice, beautiful male lion. Um, I posted the photos uh, later on after the hunt, a couple of weeks later, which I always do for just safety purposes. I don't like people to know exactly where I'm always at. And all of a sudden, my phone, everything's blowing up. I had no idea what was going on. And people were attacking me just coming out of the woodwork. Now, mind you, this was a completely legal hunt. All the paperwork, everything had been done. Nothing was done wrong on the hunt on my part or the outfitter. It's just people thought it was wrong that I was smiling in the photo. Now, of course, we all know that's part of the hunting, you know, a lot of people do that, whether you like it or not, it's a part of what we do, and it represents the hunt and everything else. Right. Well, unfortunately, there were a few celebrities who got on board And Ricky Gervais being one of them, he's one of the guys that created The Office and some other shows and sent out some pretty nasty tweets. We had like six, seven million followers. So in no time, it quickly escalated. And all of a sudden, it was all over the news because all these people actually got together and signed a petition to try to ban me from South Africa. (laughs) Now, South Africa is not going to ban me because I paid. Did all this as a legal hunt? I had done nothing wrong. Why would a country ban me? But that was actually the newsworthiness of it all. And that's why it was on BBC News. It was on Good Morning America. It was on all these places. And, you know, it was a little bit frustrating. It was a little bit scary. Um, I had worked so hard to get where I was at. I was actually afraid I was going to lose everything over this. And I hadn't even done anything wrong, you know? Right. So you're sitting back. And then all of a sudden the death threats start pouring in by the thousands and they're threatening my parents. They're showing up at my office. There's people at my home there. I mean, it got absolutely out of control and that's when it starts getting, it really hits home. You know, when your own family could be in danger or you don't know how far these people will take it. Some of the things that were said are just awful. And it's hard for me to believe that someone can wake up in the morning and think those kind of terrible thoughts. I mean, I just look at it and say, "Well, at least I'm happy in my life. I don't wake up <laughs> wishing that upon other people, you know." Right. Um, and I think that's one of the things that it really made me realize is there's a lot of people who are just pretty angry with everything going on, and right. they're just looking to jump on a bandwagon well, of something. And you know, they really need to either work more, or have some more hobbies, or have a few more friends. I don't know. Or maybe but, um, just relax. Spending a lot, you know, they're spending a lot of time online. Um, complaining about things that do not affect them in any way, shape, or form.
0: Right. So at the same time, there's a, there's 11 million hunters in the United States, probably more. What kind of support did you get from the hunting community?
1: Well, the support kind of went uh, a couple of ways. Um, I did get a lot of support. There were a lot of people, especially when I went to ATA, which was right after it all happened. It really made me feel... Like, wow, you've got this huge backing. But I also saw a divide within our own hunting community because some people said, well, you're a trophy hunter. I don't like that. I'm a hunter, but I don't agree with that. Or I don't agree with shooting a lion, but I like hunting deer. And that's what really kind of broke my heart the most out of everything is seeing a divide within our own community. I mean, that's one of the worst things that they can do. And the antis really pick up on that pretty quickly because they see, okay, Trophy hunting is a hot-button topic. Okay, let's use that to our advantage. advantage. And that's what happened a lot of it. Um, So I think that was one of the things that was the hardest to deal with is our own hunting community, not backing one another and actually cutting other people down.
0: Right. So... What was the what was the overall outcome of that? I mean, did you have to change your lifestyle for a period of time because of the intensity of this situation?
1: It got really bad that entire fall. I mean, I was super careful. I wasn't even checking into hotels under my own name. Um, everywhere I was going we're being super cautious, people would stop, say things. It was a it was a scary deal. But after it kind of settled down a little bit, then I just started looking at it as okay. <laughs> Um, I'm going to live my life. You guys can complain and do what you wish. I hopefully nobody will decide to take this a step further and actually come try to do harm to me. Um, hopefully they understand what I do for a living and would rethink that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's all you can really hope is that they just are all talk. And luckily, you know, it really had been all talk. but people would send things in the mail and, you know, that I, I'm not going to open up a package sent in the mail by someone because right. you just don't know what it is. Um, I had one woman send me a whole box full of her kitty litter and all the droppings from her cat. And I'm thinking, <laughs> really? You decided to box that up and send that in the mail, and that's what she decided to do?
0: You know, whatever. But I'm sorry for laughing, but uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just imagining this lady scooping out. Right. So you know, that damn Melissa Bachman, she's getting my kitty litter. Oh, my gosh. And then paying to mail it to me. Exactly. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. There's all kinds. Oh, my gosh. That is funny. Um, But that's – okay. So <laughs> how, is, how is life now different from that? I mean you came out on top, right? Did, mm-hmm. it, it, did, did it change? Did that Was there a silver lining to that, Thundercloud?
1: Well, I think how you look at it is it was great to see the support uh, from within our community. And, you know, I look at it as a message to remind our own hunters we have to stick together. Whether you would ever go shoot a lion or not, You cannot divide ourselves or we're going to be in a world of trouble. So I think that's something that I really pulled away. And that's something that I try to, when I do speaking engagements, I do a lot of things to try to use some of those stories to remind people that that just can't happen, that we're really hurting ourselves. So I think that's a good thing. And the other thing is, I mean, you really do need to be careful with social media. Had I still been all over in Africa when all that blew up, my safety would have been a huge, huge issue. Um, so you really have to be careful about saying exactly where you are and what you're doing, um, because it it can really be a bad deal, um, especially in other countries.
0: Right. All right. So I want to talk to you a, a moment about how women are portrayed in hunting entertainment. Now, I'm not saying all shows, but I'm saying there is a lot of shows out there where the female hunter is portrayed as kind of arm candy or a sidekick to the male hunter. And they're kind of told where to, where to hunt, how to hunt, when to shoot, what animal to shoot, and it just seems that they're not making a lot of decisions for themselves. What do you, what is your opinion on that comment?
1: Well, um, I do think that that is part of some of the shows, and one of the best parts about hunting TV or any TV that I find is if you don't really like it, there's always other options out there. You know, there's lots of women hunters who are completely on their own that are strong hunters um, that have a different perspective on it. But what I like about Anybody being out there and involved is the fact that they are maybe speaking to a different person who is interested in that. Maybe there are certain women or girls out there who they don't want to be the one actually making all the decisions. They'd rather be in a situation where they're kind of told what to do. That's not my style by one bit at all, but some people like that. So I think the good part about it is there's something for everybody. Now, no, um, you know, it, it is definitely a difference. But I think the important thing is is finding ways to reach as many new hunters as possible. Um, there may be some women out there who watch my show and say, oh, that's not for me. I could never do that. I could never go out and call in a black bear and be hunting on my own with no guides. No, that's not for me. Well, it's not what every hunt is like. So I think there's a good way to look at shows that maybe showcase where they're more being brought along just for fun and, and they're getting out there and enjoying it. Maybe that will appeal to someone else a little bit more. So in my opinion, I think it's good. Whichever way we can get more people involved, that's really all that matters at the end of the day. And there is a wide variety. There's a, a wide variety of people and styles of hunting and styles of shows. So hopefully there's something for everybody out there.
0: And to, to elaborate on, on that question, I guess to expand it a bit, mm-hmm. is I have a daughter and mm-hmm. I, I take my wife hunting. She's not really into hunting, but we go turkey hunting mm-hmm. together because she likes to spend time with me, and she's okay with killing a turkey, not necessarily mm-hmm. a deer, but she's okay with, mm-hmm. with turkey hunting. Now, with my, with my daughter, I don't kind of like how your parents raised you in the, in the hunting world. I don't want to put any pressure on my daughter to do something she doesn't want to do. But at the same time, if she does want to go hunting, I don't want to just take her hunting. I want to educate her on how to hunt, you know, like the whole saying, Mm -hmm. you can give someone a fish and they'll eat for a day, Mm -hmm. or you can teach someone to fish and they'll eat for a lifetime. So how important is it? And this doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, women hunters, but all Mm -hmm. new hunters, how important is it in your opinion, to take them hunting, but also educate them on how to hunt.
1: It is extremely important, and not only just how to hunt, but educate them on the annual an, animal mannerisms. Educate them on when you're turkey hunting, why they're gobbling, what they're doing, the different types of calls. You know why they roost in the tree. All these things that kids are or any new hunter they're interested in, but maybe they'd be too afraid to ask because the more information you can give someone, the more they're going to want to be a part of it. The more they're going to ask more questions and want to learn more. And the same goes with hunting, whether you're teaching them about tracks or, or, you know, why you would hunt in this location. I think you really get that, that part of them that says, huh, this is something really cool, this is difficult, It takes. it's a challenge, Um, so they want to learn more, and I think that is so important. The last thing you want to do is just go sit in a blind, shoot a turkey, okay, done, over. Okay, it was a fun time, but they didn't really learn anything out of it. You've got all that time in the blind or on stand or even out just setting stands, you know, about why you'd pick a tree stand. Sure, if a kid is 8, 10 years old, Maybe they don't totally understand, but it's all about that communication and keeping it up. That way, they can go back, they can tell their friends, you can get more hunters involved, and you really do pique their curiosity by telling them more information rather than just doing it and bringing them along.
0: All right. Now I know how to uh now I know how to approach it. All right. So, you've been you've you've been on a lot of hunts. Have you ever had what a scary moment or maybe a, a near-death experience
1: i've been on a lot of different hunts and one of the locations that we probably got in a little over our heads was down in louisiana a good friend and i were going down and we were going to be gator hunting well we didn't i had been on lots lot of gator hunts and we didn't really think there were going to be that big of gators down there now when you're hunting louisiana it's different set up. um, You actually have to get the gator on a hook first. So we had gone out. It's more like trapping. We went out, we put all our baits out. We were going and checking them. We had this little john boat. We had a little 17 um, just to shoot the gators with when you pull them up to the surface. And we had an absolute giant on. This thing was way bigger than our boat. We pulled up the line. He had busted the entire tree down that we had the bait tied to. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, and so we start pulling up the line. There's only two of us. I'm running my camera. I just set it into the boat and filmed it all as it happened. And this gator was thrashing at our boat, biting at the boat. And the other guy looked at me and he said, if that gator gets in this boat, we both have to jump out immediately. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we ended up getting the gator. And we could hardly even get it back to shore because even the dead weight of it was so heavy. We got to shore and we actually called a guy with a bobcat who came and pulled it out and had to place it into our vehicle because it was so huge. Um, but that was one of those times where, yeah, it was a little scary, and uh, it got a little bit more than we expected.
0: <laughs> how how long was that alligator?
1: I think that one was 11.8. Um, it was a huge, huge alligator. And it weighed, we thought it was close to right around between 900 and 1,000 pounds. It was an absolute monster. <laughs>
0: So I went on, I went down to New Orleans once and I went on a tour of the swamp and this guy shuts Mm -hmm. the boat off and he pulls up to the bank and he starts banging on the boat. And we're like, what is this guy doing? And he put a piece of raw chicken in his mouth and he hung over the side of the boat. And I did not know that alligators can jump out of the water. And this Mm -hmm. guy, this alligator jumped out of the water and bit the piece of chicken out of this guy's mouth. And I That I was... guy's
1: slightly in pain. <laughs> uh,
0: it was not. Yes,
1: they will jump out of the water. But you know what? There's a very good chance they close their eyes when they bite. Um, I wouldn't risk my face uh, being in the way of that. Plus, I wouldn't want raw chicken in my mouth or rotten raw chicken. Right, so, right. That guy, uh, well, that's one way to do it. But yes, they definitely will.
0: <laughs> so... I'll ask you one more. We'll get one more cool hunt out of, uh, out of you. What about your first, have, have you killed an elk with a bow yet? Yes, I have. All right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the very first elk hunt you ever, or your successful elk hunt with a bow?
1: Um, I did an elk hunt out in Colorado, and the uh, bulls were just bugling and screaming. And, and when you are sitting there with a bow and you can hear them coming in, I mean, I don't know anybody that can keep this composure at all. And we had been trying it a whole bunch of different ways. We're on the ground, and we just weren't having any luck bringing the bulls right in past us. So we decided, you know what, we're going to set up at a water hole. And I hung a tree stand there. I was going to hunt them just like a whitetail, get up in the tree. And I thought, we'll get them this time. Well, I saw the entire herd go there way off in the distance and it didn't look like they were coming into the water and it was getting down to, you know, the last day of my hunt. And I thought, Oh, I've got to make a move. So we actually got out of the tree stand, cut them off, called and we had this beautiful bull come right by. I think it was a 30 yard shot and, it was just awesome. I mean, when you can hear all those cows around you, and you've got a bull, and you just know that he's following the cows, and if he stays on path, it, you're going to have a shot, and it is a really, really exciting thing to be a part of, and, and that's one of my favorite things to do is archery elk hunting. I mean, it is an exciting time of year to be out there just hearing the bull bugle, right. but then when you can be at full draw and have one step out, it's pretty tough to be.
0: Right. Well, Melissa, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the show and, and talking with us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. I sure appreciate it very much.
0: If uh, people want to learn uh, more about you or you know follow you, where should, uh, where should we send them?
1: Um, you can go to MelissaBachman.com or you can go on my shows on the Sportsman Channel every Sunday year-round at 1130 Eastern Time. Uh, so you can check out the show every week i'm on social media just look up melissa bachman and you should find everything on winchester deadly passion
0: and that brings us to the end of our hump day podcast huge shout out to melissa bachman for coming on the show and spending some time with us today also an even an even bigger louder shout out goes to all of you guys for tuning in and listening if you haven't already please spread the word about this podcast Tell your friends, tell all the other hunters, if you if you like it, you know, spread the word. Visit me on my Facebook page where I'm doing the live feeds, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and all the other social media avenues. That's where I'm at. That's where you guys should be at. I also want to thank Exodus Trail Cameras for, uh, you know, repping this podcast. Thank you very much. Like I said, if you guys want to find out more about their kick-ass tra- cameras... Be sure to go to ExodusOutdoorgear.com. Other than that, not a lot to say. I know I talked about it earlier this week a little bit, but the question is, other than your tags and your license license that you buy, how much are you giving back to conservation? It's something that needs to be thought about and thought about a lot because for every hunter that is thinking about doing something for conservation. There is an anti-hunter thinking about doing something to take away our rights as hunters. So, for every hunter, there is an opposite. Something to think about. Now remember, next time you're in a tree stand, wear your damn safety harness.